2: co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker.
3: Welcome to The New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Way back in 2002, the new show American Idol proved itself in its very first season, yielding a star who immediately became a real American Idol, Kelly Clarkson.
4: Hello, Kelly.
2: Hello. How old are you? I'm a big fan of you, by the way. Thank, thank yeah, you very I'm 20. Much. I just turned 20 this April.
4: Oh, happy birthday.
3: She won the first season at the tender age of 20, and she had hits for years before launching her talk show on NBC in 2019. Clarkson is 41 now and just released an album that deals with the long arc of a relationship and her recent divorce. She spoke the other day with our staff writer, Hanif Abdurraqib, who writes brilliantly on music, and he's passionate about the craft of songwriting and singing. Here's Hanif.
1: Late last year, I was talking to the poet, Ross Gay, and he kept saying that if he were to start a band, he would be a singer. And he couldn't explain why, and he just kept repeating this phrase, I just love singers. I grew up loving singers. And I realized that I too did not have language for this, but I knew for a fact that I also love singers. I grew up loving singers. I grew up loving Mahalia Jackson, Aretha Franklin, Tony Braxton, Mary J. Blige, and on and on and on. Kelly Clarkson is a singer I have loved for a long time. I didn't watch American Idol, and I have maybe never watched a full season of American Idol, and so there is a way that I miss the earliest act of her career and came in around what would be considered act two, her second album and beyond. And what I loved about Kelly Clarkson and arriving to her in this way specifically is that I did not think about the framing of her as a pop star. Kelly Clarkson to me was a rock singer. I thought she was more like Ann Wilson than anything, especially when I began to see her live and her bands were so loud and she was always kind of leading them atop them, pushing the volume. And Chemistry, it is an album that details a very public divorce. It's raw, it's beautiful, on-its-face writing that traverses both pain and rage, but also gratitude and pleasure. I was thrilled to talk with Kelly a little bit about the record. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing?
2: I'm so good. How are you, man?
1: I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for making a little bit of time this morning. I'm excited to talk to you about Chemistry, which I loved, and, um, you know, I'm such a big fan of your career as a writer not just as a singer and I'm I'm really interested in um, how you felt your writing evolved on this record it felt um, you know I feel like you've always been a great writer a confessional writer or a writer who um, puts <laughs> themselves first and foremost um, at the front of their narratives but it also felt like this album the writing was a bit less metaphorical and more direct in a way and um, I was wondering kind of how you evolved through the process of writing this record that is maybe the most personal uh, record you've completed.
2: Yeah, I think it's easier to hide in metaphors when it's um, not the biggest thing that's ever happened. Um, so its it was very hard because I kept trying as well. Um, you know, cause I have children. So I, even whenever I was writing for me, you know, I was just, it was therapeutic and I was just getting it out. Um, that was, that was just more of out of necessity for me. I think it ended up, you know, anytime I try and go back in, cause I did quite a bit, actually, nobody's asked me this question. Good question. But, um, I did try and go back and go, how could I, <laughs> how could I rephrase that to where, and then it ended up being this, I was jumping in ho- like through hoops to try and make it. And it's like, everyone's going to know (laughs) it's not like you know whatever i say like everyone it it, you know unfortunately um my life is very public especially in the rough times so um anything that was already out there i felt like was okay fair game because the kids are gonna probably ask me in the future about that anyway they're too young they don't they don't get it they don't we don't allow them On the internet, like that, anyway. Um, But anyway, so it 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 was. It's more. It's easier to write metaphorically when one. It's like a situation that you're like touching on, or maybe it's like a, you know, any time in the past. It's been about a breakup or something. That's a lot different than a marriage and like someone you thought you were going to spend the rest of your life with and that crumbling. So I think it's more. My writing is more mature. I think just because of circumstance um, and age, obviously, Um, because I think overall. If you listen to like my first record, even the writing on that with like Miss Independent or Troubled Lovers, like those are those are songs that are are not necessarily immature. They're they're right for that stage, right? right? They're they're right for that person's age at that time, right? But um but yeah, no, it was it was it was impossible to write metaphorically for me because it was therapeutic. So this is what I mean when I'm singing it, you know? And and I think that, you know, that it started to become um Something I would want to listen to, you know. I remember whenever I got Jagged Little Pill, and I, and I was like, I think late junior high, isn't that came out for me? And
1: that's the Alanis Morissette record. We're mm-hmm. about the same age, so that came out for me also in junior high.
2: Yeah, I. It was just so honest and and no, like I mean, she yes, there are metaphors here and there, just because she's clever and incredibly intelligent. But but for the most part, you knew exactly kind of what was going on, and that honesty was something that I latched onto. Even Mary J, she was one of those people, too, that I felt like when I listened to, like, anytime you hear her sing, too, there's just a certain honesty, Bonnie rates like that. Um, but anyway, I just, I don't know. I think I, it was, there was no, there was no option, you know? And like when you're that sad and like broken, I think, I think it just has to come out how it comes out.
1: Yeah. What I love about this album, and I think actually what I think shows an arc of your work, but really comes to light most ferociously on this album is that it's not just a um sad album but I actually think it's reductive to call it a divorce album or at least it feels that way to me because um mm. there's a lot of tenderness on it and I think um yeah it balances um and I think it's sequenced wonderfully because it balances sometimes anger sometimes pleasure sometimes a kind of wistful longing um how did you get to a mm-hmm. place where you were where you could honor the full arc of a relationship when it would perhaps be easier to kind of make a straightforward, somewhat salacious yeah. divorce record, especially due to the public record.
2: Definitely easier to write those songs, yes. Um, you know, it's it can, it's out now, but like this literally was real time. Like this record was written years ago. Like, I mean, this most of the songs on this record were written right when everything was happening. So, um, even like when it comes to like um, down to you down to you on this record was written while well, i was married
4: and now I know you'll never I don't wanna be your can't do I think um,
2: so some of them were re- you know real real time and then also i think when you're in a relationship and it takes it takes you that long and you knew for a while you know you you ride that roller coaster the reason why you go back and you and you try again is because you love this person and you remember all those moments like magic the song on the record chemistry or you know any any of those you know favorite kind of high like remembering like that that song was really important for me to have on the record because i favorite kind of high is like the beginning
4: take me home tonight
2: reason why the record does have it's not just a divorce album is because in real time that was me being indecisive of like man i have kids like this is do i want to do this like do i want to can i can i try again like can i like you know it's just it's a you're you're literally seeing me go through okay but remember it's like this and da, 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 and like and honestly that's very it's a very good example of how unhealthy we can be in relationships right. because you know, if something's bad for you and it's it's a, you know, cancerous environment, it's nothing as good left, you know, to hold on to, you should walk away. Like, but I think we get, it's that thing, especially in a relationship. I think we have habits or tendencies, be it childhood trauma, be it whatever that you kind of sink back into. And that's why you go back down and then you go back up and then you go back down. And it's, so you're, you're seeing me go through what I'm going, I'm I'm writing these songs, figuring out what the hell I'm going to do. That's like what is happening during this album.
4: I need How did we end up this way? I'm so confused lover. Did I mistake love and pain? No left.
2: Um and I think lighthouse, um, I don't think I know because I remember writing that song. um that was the moment when i was like all right like i can't lighthouse was one of the last ones i wrote for the album and it was for me like we're both drowning like we've gotta like we're nowhere near each other we can't see each other like we're no this is never gonna you know i gotta swim to shore at some point or just we're both gonna die out here
1: one thing that i really loved and to talk about your writing technique and ability in watching your writing evolve is it's it's become more playful i think and more tongue-in-cheek so for example one of my favorite songs on the record is red flag collector which is not (laughs) um at all funny i think in a traditional sense but it is fun and um i was wondering if if Just like spending time in front of people, interviewing people, talking to people all the time on the talk show, if that has impacted your songwriting and made it this kind of joyfully conversational, available for playful detours, these kind of things.
2: You know, I never really thought about that, but it's, it probably, it most definitely has affected me. I mean, just... And I bet I'm like that at dinner now, too, like with people. <laughs> like I bet I'm like people are like, you know, we're not on stage. and are not interviewing someone. Um, but I also think just age, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think that that plays a part, too. And it depends on where you are in life and like how. I mean, that's a huge thing to happen to someone. I think we hear it's a statistic, right? Like, chances are, like, half the time or probably more than half at this point, um, you're not going to make it like in marriage. Like, I know the statistic is there. But it doesn't make it less impactful. It doesn't make it less um, uh, dramatic and, and, and um, enormous, you know, in your life. So I think also just something that happens that's so huge, there's nowhere to go but really super honest. And also, if you use humor as a healing mechanism, then, you know, you've kind of got to laugh. You know, it's like, oh, my God, we're talking about towels like you know we're, like we're that's like my heart is broken on the floor and we're talking about who gets the towels like i can't have that conversation like yeah. i can I, I can't actually like and then it and then you have to go to humor cuz if you don't go to humor you go to a very very dark place but i i just think it's just it's such a things happen and you're just like what you're, yeah yeah you, <laughs> you know and you're you're just um taken aback
1: heartbreak is a kind of absurdity, and the the logistics of heartbreak present a real absurdity, but also um falling in love is equally a bit absurd and i i uh yeah. not maybe not in the same way, but it presents this idea of um knowing what the damage could be, knowing the statistics of the potential for heartbreak falling in love presents a kind of absurdity and um i, I I'm curious how you're you're your writing of an interest in love songs has changed as you've aged, not even just with this specific dislocation of a divorce and, and still finding, uh, but but it, yeah. throughout your whole career, you've, I mean, this isn't your, obviously not your first foray into either breakup anthems, anthems or love songs, but I'm curious mm-hmm. how that approach of writing the love song has changed.
2: I've, I've always been like, since I was a kid, like this person that if the reality is not great, I will create it in a form you know like say like if your home life isn't great you will create something in your head to like you know heal or or deal not heal deal um and um i don't know i think that's kind of because i don't want to be like the person that's like i don't believe in it because i definitely do it's not i don't hate love i know the song is on there but i don't <laughs> hate love um but you know i it's never uh love has been a hard go for me like you know whether it's like parent or you know friendships even sometimes or um you know I've only been in love like love like that like with um uh, my ex but but it just it doesn't seem to work out so great for me so then you have to go well what's wrong with me <laughs> like you know at some point you're like and then that's what therapy's for um but um and then you find out too like Sometimes your personality you attract these certain people, right? So, um writing love songs is hard for me. It's it's never been easy for me. I think w- whenever I write a love song, you know, there's always like that that elephant in the room of like um sadness as well.
1: I really love that you mentioned Mary J Blige because I I think that um Both of your approaches, which I really admire, not only in my own writing but in the things I consume, I like a love song that is a bit skeptical, and I think Mary J. Blige, for me when I was young, was a real, like the real gold standard of writing a skeptical love song.
2: I think that's a really great like. I've met her too, and first of all, so cool and so sweet, but also very honest in person, Um, like you know, like very vulnerable in person, which is cool. But um, no, I think that's a very good. That's what why. It's not even, like, her songs are great, but her voice, like, Mary's voice has, it's an incredible thing to have hope, sadness, determination, and, you know, constantly hurtling. Like, you're fine, you know, you're having a fight. She just has all these kind of things in her tone that you can't teach someone. That's a life. Like, that's a life that's been living that, and that's why it sounds like that, you know, so um chris stapleton's a person like that too Mm -hmm. like that just has this natural you know gift for whatever's been going on in his life but like it has molded this sound that is even when they're singing a a love song it sounds like heartbreak you know
1: right right yeah i speaking of sound i've i've seen you live through a, a few different eras you know and um you know when you were coming out of idol it never, I, you know, I was much younger then, but it, it still never really struck me the way that you were kind of boxed in, the way that one gets boxed in when coming out of Idol is kind mm-hmm. of like a, a clearly a pop idol. And so I was really mm-hmm. thrilled, you know, seeing you during some of these areas where you're playing with very loud bands, you know, um, so like All I've Ever Wanted, that kind of uh, my December, these, these eras where yeah. it seemed like you were, you know, more, um, it's more like ann wilson you know like fronting a very loud rock band and then
2: i you just read my mind i was like well i'm a huge ann wilson fan so i'm <laughs> i i think it's all my influences yeah. i think that's the thing like people always tell me even with the kelly Oakey part of like on the talk show it's like it's like you y'all are just seeing that and being like oh she now she's dabbling and it's like no, no 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 a lot of us artists like we all grew up listening to different things like I love Aretha Franklin. I love Annie Lennox. I love Ruby McIntyre. I love Aerosmith. I love Mary J. Blige. I, you know, I love Tony Braxton. I could sing all that. I you know all the riffs. Mariah Whitney. Like I, I grew up listening to a Guns N' Roses loved. Like I'm a decade younger than my brother, so a lot of him, his influences. Um musically when I was were really little and we all still lived together, I heard that. So like White Snake, like all that stuff. So um that's why ACDC usually I open every show with that. Like yeah. I I like I've always and I think all artists, we, we're like a a culmination of all these people that have inspired us, right? And that forms our sound. And and that for me is has been the greatest I love interviewing and I love what the show like cuz i just love talking so i love people like it it's it, I have obviously always had a gift of gab which got me in trouble in high school but um but it's working now um but i love that part of it but also a huge part of me like the main part for for me as an artist is getting to show people like first of all highlight all this music that maybe you've never heard like new indie artists too or older artists maybe that the younger people watching haven't heard of but it's also just being able to display like what i want my radio station to sound like mm. you know what i'm saying like i want to hear all this stuff on in one place you know
1: kelly clarkson thank you so much for spending a little bit of time with me this morning i really appreciate it uh, i love the record and and thank you for your work
4: yeah thank you so much i ain't your little girl you're confused and i've lost patience take your
3: kelly clarkson the deluxe version of her album chemistry comes out this weekend she spoke with staff writer Hanif Abdurraqib. This is the New Yorker Radio Hour, with more to come.
4: Keep the money, I'll take freedom. You and I really means whatever you want. Turns out I like to do things that you don't, that's right. I like the ocean, that's right. I sink my toes and that's right.
3: If you're enjoying this podcast, you might enjoy even more of what The New Yorker has to offer. Becoming a subscriber gives you unlimited access to The New Yorker, including Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting, insightful cultural commentary, and fiction and poetry. You'll also enjoy our delightful cartoons, crossword puzzles, narrated stories, and much more. This past year, our readers were gripped by Ronan Farrow's profile of Elon Musk, Heidi Blake's extraordinary tale about Dubai's runaway princesses, and much more. Visit newyorker.com to gain access to all this and more. Use the code POD15, P-O-D-1-5, to secure a 15% discount on a yearly digital subscription. That's P-O-D-15 for a 15% discount.
1: Hi, I'm Adam Howard, a senior producer for the Radio Hour, and I have a quick favor to ask of you. This program has been nominated for a relatively new award in our industry, the Signal Award, which recognizes the best podcasts in the country. The twist is that you have a say in whether we win. So if you enjoy this program, show your love by logging on to vote.signalaward.com. You'll have to click a few times to get to the news and politics category, and that's where you'll find us. The window to vote is really short, so do it now if you can. We really appreciate it. Now, back to the show.
3: This is the New Yorker Radio Hour. I'm David Remnick. Robert Samuels is one of our newest staff writers, and he just won a Pulitzer Prize as the co-author of the book, His Name is George Floyd, a biography of George Floyd. I'll let you in on a little secret. The first time I met Robert, and I was trying to get him to join the New Yorker, he insisted on a pretty peculiar term in our deal. He wanted me to promise that in addition to his covering politics, he could be our figure skating correspondent. He was kidding, but not really. Robert really is a figure skating fanatic, and he has been for a pretty long time.
0: When I was in second grade, my second grade teacher was a big figure skating fan, and she put up a copy of this Newsweek article that featured who I thought was the most beautiful woman I had ever seen, and it was Christy Yamaguchi. (laughs) And... I, you know, I fell in love and I wanted to know everything about her. So I started watching the Olympics.
3: And now a few years past the second grade, you told me that you watch skating as a form of procrastination. You know, I'll sometimes watch people breaking down a guitar solo on a YouTube video. You're watching skating videos. How come?
0: Over time, I, you know, it went from me just watching and enjoying sport to seeing these kind of metaphors for life and metaphors for writing. And I know that sounds strange, but I feel like in the world of journalism, especially when I started, lots of people were getting laid off and lots of people were losing their jobs. It felt like you were doing something that was singular by yourself, um, but you're also a part of a really slippery ecosystem. And I started watching videos on YouTube whenever I felt distracted or needed a break or needed to be excited because i started envisioning my writing process as being a figure skating competition
3: what what are your go-to clips what's what's say the first one you comes to mind
0: the first clip that comes to mind when i'm feeling particularly down and i feel my best days are behind me <laughs> is this clip from the 2000 World Figure Skating Championships. What is astounding about this video is for, you know, like for the early part of my childhood, Michelle Kwan was unbeatable. Everyone thought she was the best thing ever. And then she goes to the Olympics and she loses the Olympics to Tara Lipinski. Um, And it's a surprise. But, you know, Tara Lipinski bursts on the scene, she's young, she's fast, and after the Olympics, she doesn't compete again. Michelle Kwan continues, but it's not the same Michelle Kwan. Um, She's slower, she's not jumping as well. And she starts losing, like, uh, you know, coming in second and sometimes winning, but it's, you know, she's not skating with this sort of authority. And so when she gets to this long program, she's in third place and she needs to do something magical to win because the other girls who she's competing with, they're now doing jumps that are harder than she's doing. So she needs to find something within herself to win.
4: She recently moved out of the dorm at UCLA to an apartment closer to her training site, cut down on her class load to concentrate on skating.
0: There's a part of the video at the very beginning when Peggy Fleming who's commentator she's quoting Michelle Kwan's coach Frank Carroll Coach Frank Carroll says that's the way of sport you have to continue to make progress or you'll get left in the dust The nature of sport is that you have to continue to make progress or you get left in the dust and I continue to think about that all the time you know that it's not just important to be good at what you're good at. You have to continue pushing yourself or else you might be rendered irrelevant.
3: Now what is the climax of this? What is what is the, you know, act moment of this Michelle Kwan video?
0: So after this jumping past here, which is triple Lutz, double toe loop, you're going to see her build a great amount of speed because she's going to attempt to do a triple-triple combination. That's Three revolutions in the air, immediately followed by another three revolutions in the air. This is her most important element her triple triple combination. Every girl in the world is doing this, and she hasn't been hitting it consistently. So now you're seeing her skate super duper fast. And here's the first three on the toe right here. And there's another immediate oh, three. She killed it. It uh, <laughs> kills it. Oh, good for her. Oh, God. So this is the side that Michelle Kwan has come to play. She's looking a lot better than she's looked over the past two years since she lost the Olympics.
3: Okay, this is way better than learning how to make a, a spaghetti bolognese. I think I'm going to start watching these YouTubes. Let's move on to the 2016 World Championships. What are we going to watch here?
0: Okay, this one is of Javier Fernandez. Okay. He's a skater from Spain. First, uh, the first breakout star from the country of Spain, which is very exciting. Now,
3: there's some comic element to this.
0: Yeah, so this is a performance set to the music of Guys and Dolls, and he is uh, pretending he's sort of taking on a character as Nathan Detroit or one of the gamblers. Javier's is obviously a multiple quad jumper as well, smooth and easy. That's his style, and so he's setting up for a quadruple toe loop here. Bang! Nails oh,
4: Glorious! Glorious!
0: Javier Fernandez kind of came from nowhere. Like there was no culture of skating in Spain, and sometimes, you know, as a black journalist who does sort of long-form or enterprise reporting, you kind of feel out of place. And so I always remember the day Javier Fernandez came and no one thought he was going to win, Any he wins. Um, and it's one of those really inspiring things for me.
4: There it is. Just like that. That's why he's
1: a world champion.
3: Now, the, the final, the pick three, we, we've, we've got Gabriela Papadakis, did I say that right? And Guillaume Cizeron.
0: That's correct. It's 2018. We're in... Uh, the olympics papadakis and caesar on the french team their final performance is to moonlight sonata um, the
3: beethoven top 40 hit
0: i know you know not the most thrilling piece of music but what they do with it is expansive now the trick about um looking at ice dance is you have to train your eyes to essentially look at the bottom up because the legs, how they sway, how they lean from one side, their connection to each other is how you can tell a good ice dancer from a poor ice dancer. But what's so expressive about this is you see the fluidity in their legs? They're just kind of like breathing the Moonlight Sonata, right? You can almost hear the sound without hearing it. what what is amazing about this right is here they are they're you know they're skating so close together their blades could collapse at any moment but it actually looks like they're conducting the music they've just imbued it in this like really um chest clenching way and for me like this is about authority right this is about taking a piece that's well known and completely owning it and making it your own through what you can do.
3: So, the the message of all this and the outcome of all this is that in exchange for having to deal with the politics of this world for the next couple of years, you're going to go for the New Yorker to the Winter Olympics. You looking forward to that?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I cannot wait.
3: You won't have to wait till 2026 to read Robert Samuels. You can find some of his reporting already at newyorker.com. Robert is the co-author of the book, His Name is George Floyd, which won the Pulitzer Prize. I'm David Remnick, and that's The New Yorker Radio Hour for today. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.
2: The New Yorker Radio Hour is a co-production of WNYC Studios and The New Yorker. Our theme music was composed and performed by Meryl Garbes of Tune Yards, with additional music by Louis Mitchell. This episode was produced by Max Balton, Brita Green, Adam Howard, Kalalia, David Krasnow, Jeffrey Masters, Louis Mitchell, and Gofen Mputibuele, with guidance from Emily Botin and assistance from Mike Kutchman, Michael May, David Gable, and Alejandro Deckett. The New Yorker Radio Hour is supported in part by the Cherena Endowment Fund.
0: Since
3: WNYC's first broadcast in 1924, we've been dedicated to creating the kind of content we know the world needs. In addition to this award-winning reporting, your sponsorship also supports inspiring storytelling and extraordinary music that is free and accessible to all. To get in touch and find out more, visit sponsorship.wnyc.org.